Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 115 of the Weekly Word Podcast. Ultra-endurance is different than most sports in the traditional sense. Many hours, heck, days of competing. Multi-day stage races, 10 to 20 days of working through and across terrain, adventures that require prep for harsh conditions, lack of sleep, and immense fatigue. This is the knowledge resource for those athletes, those adventurers, those curious to see what they are capable of on the far end of their current potential, their current reality. We discuss everything from hydration, nutrition, to strategy. Like I always say, you can be fitter than the course, but that only helps you if you're properly fueled and properly hydrated. And then what does it mean to be fitter than the course? Well, if you're fitter than the course, now you can apply strategy. Because if you're not fit enough for the event, for the adventure you signed up for, for the expedition, for that um, curated exploration that you're going on, guess what? There is no strategy. That means the strategy is finishing. If you're not fitter than the event, the 50-miler, the 100-miler, the Ironman triathlon, the ultra-endurance, or the ultraman, or the 10K swim, or the 25-mile swim, or the Catalina swim, or the Tahoe swim, or any type of cross-country bike race, or a 3,000-kilometer gravel race across Australia, or a multi-day stage race through the mountains or the deserts anywhere in the world, well, guess what? If you're not fitter than that course, if you're not fitter for than you need to be for each day, you have no strategy. It's called finishing. That's your only strategy. But when we prepare properly, when we when you get the proper coaching, the proper insight, the proper prep, the proper nutrition, the proper mindset, the proper fueling, the proper hydration, the proper everything in order to be your best for that event, even if you're a beginner, but be your best, your best version of yourself out there at the event that you were preparing for, then you can start thinking strategy. Then you can start thinking, well, how am I going to navigate myself across this course as fast as I can to the best of my abilities? And that's what we talk about here on the Weekly Word Podcast. That's where we dive into, that's why we dive into, excuse me, not where, why we dive into all these topics. Because whether you're running a trail half marathon, a 50K in hilly terrain, doing a first half Ironman or Ironman, or doing a first 10K swim, 15K swim, 5K swim, whatever it is, you want to have at least A, the fitness, the prep, the knowledge that you can do it. And then you also want to have the confidence and the ability and the um, experience to know that you can dive into it and truly have fun with it versus just survive it. What was it a quote I heard one of my athletes um, say a couple months? I want to thrive. I don't want to just survive. That's it, right? We want to thrive doing the event, the adventure, the expedition, the race we signed up for. We don't want to just survive it. And that's what we discuss here, how to thrive not just survive. That's the Weekly Word Podcast, basically, <laughs> in a more aggressive way of describing it. So yeah, this is going to be a fun podcast. We're going to check in with Sonny again, see how he's doing in his prep for his marathon. We're like 19 weeks out, so we still have plenty of time. So he's still doing some basic stuff. I dive into a variety of emails. And I go through a little, a few topics that 
keep coming up in the correspondence and the communication I have with my athletes, such as them getting stuck out on the open road on their bikes because they only brought CO2. And I rant a little bit about learning how to use a hand pump (laughs) so that doesn't happen to you anymore. I also talk about race selection and why I don't really get involved in it. Um, I'm a participant, but I don't direct it. It's not my pushing or um, my ideas that I want the athlete to embrace. I want the athlete to come up with their own ideas. And then, yeah, we dive into a variety of different topics um, from mindset to zone two preparation to, you know, talking to Zhani about some of the most basic parts of getting going on a, on a, um, running routine and running volume so that he has a platform and an ability to then add quality and intensity to that platform. So that's where we are right there. I also talk a little bit about transitions and how we don't want to waste time in there or stop, period, done. That's all I should have to say about that. But I'll dive into that topic a little bit. I also read a longer letter by somebody who's talking to me about their first 70.3 and some questions they had with it. And I thought it was worthwhile to go long form on one of these questions as well as answer some of the logistics and the funnier parts of what comes up when you're new to triathlon. And then finally, I talk a little bit of Kona strategy. Kona's coming up in four weeks. And of course, I'm going to discuss that a little bit on this um, podcast in the next few weeks. But overall, this athlete was curious as to what a Kona strategy should be. And I dive into trying to answer that. But as you can imagine, (laughs) that's a pretty individual thing. And without the proper information and history and so forth, there's not much I can answer there. So, but yeah, that's just an insight into all the things we discussed this week. I hope you enjoy the podcast and yeah, we'll go from there. I'm continuously surprised by how many athletes send me their race plans and in it, they are hydrating or eating in transitions, especially in T1. Like I, I, that leaves me at a loss of words. Why would you stop your momentum and not be moving when you're eating and drinking? You have time on the bike. While rolling at 15, 16, 20, 22 miles an hour to eat and drink. Why would you spend that time in transition? Same thing for bike to run. Here you are. You're not going to sit down and drink and eat. You might sit down briefly, especially in an Ironman. Get some water on you. Get situated. Get your mind right. But then... You do all that while you're moving, while you're moving closer to the finish line. You have 70.3 miles or 140.6 miles to complete. Do everything you can to keep moving, moving towards that finish line, moving to get more miles done. Same as for run um, aid stations. You don't want to stop or walk if you can avoid it. You maybe need to slow down and shuffle through in order to get the things you need or want or pour water over you or whatever it is. And you always want to have a strategy prior going into the aid station on how you're going to go through this aid station. But same thing, don't stop. Keep moving. Keep momentum. Keep getting closer to the finish line and stopping in any transition. Olympic distance. 70.3, Ironman, 
Ultraman, whatever it is, is just dead time, right? You want to avoid that at all costs. Okay, so this week, I surely want to get through a variety of email questions that I've received, and some are actually timely with regards to this time of the year and with Kona coming up and so forth. So I am right away going to dive into the first one, which talks about Kona strategy. Hi, Chris, I've been listening to your podcast for the last six months, and they've been a great help for my training. Thanks a lot. In the previous podcast, you've talked about race strategy. I would like to know if you can give me some tips for Kona regarding nutrition and race pace, meaning bike pace at what percentage of power threshold. In the run, should I pace myself by speed of heart rate and what percentage of threshold? And this is from Alvaro. Well, first of all, congrats on qualifying for Kona. Um, Not an easy thing to do, and it's actually getting harder every year as this sport matures. Um, With that, that means that there's more um, players, I should say, in the field in each age group. And so getting one of those coveted top age group spots whereby you can choose to accept the Kona slot um, has become more and more competitive. The numbers necessarily of triathlon aren't um, exploding as they used to, but those that are on the threshold or in that Kona qualifying field remain pretty high and they stick with it so that the one-offs and those just dabbling in triathlon and Ironman triathlon, they do fall off. Um, They might do one every two, three, four, five years. Um, But those that are on the threshold or on the cusp of qualifying, they're obviously doing two, maybe even three attempts a year. And those that are qualifying or have recently qualified will stick hard, uh, work hard to stick to their placing, to their coveted um, spot in the age group in order to return to Kona, in order to continue to improve the experience of Kona. The challenge for me after doing Kona, I think it was 14 times, is, you know, I learn more and more every year. Now, after a few years, clearly, (laughs) I felt it was time that I learned enough and that um, I was ready to attack the age group. I would say that started happening about three, four Konas in, where I started thinking, hmm, I would have an opportunity to be at the very top, if not within the top five, which in Kona is the podium. And so from there, the training did get more focused towards that event. And so you structure your season differently. But also keep in mind, back in the day, (laughs) when this guy was his younger self, um, you had the opportunity to qualify at half Ironmans. You had the opportunity to go to an Ironman in a far off country and land. And there were a variety of slots there, sometimes 20 or 30. So I would say it wasn't necessarily easier to qualify, but you had, it had a different um, approach methodology to trying to get your Kona slot. Luckily, I was always in a position that I could pretty much work my way into the top of the age group at the first Ironman or half Ironman of the season. And so then I could focus on my best possible outcome in October. And over the years that created a rhythm and a structure to my training and a seasonality um, that really benefited me. That's how it worked in my swimming years, um, in the structure and sort of 
um, this, the, the swings of the season and when you want to be at your best and sort of when you're sort of just maintaining and, and keeping it a little lighter on the mind. So, but I digress with the Kona aspect. Um, so the questions here, um, I would like to know if you can give me tips for Kona regarding nutrition. So the first part about Kona nutrition is that it is quite hot there, as everybody knows, and it's a different type of heat. Very few races, very few Ironmans around the world um, start in high temperatures, meaning that your core temperature goes up way earlier than in most Ironmans. Many Ironmans, I would say the majority of Ironmans around the world, um, you start in cooler temperatures in the morning, and then you're swimming in a wetsuit or truly cool temperatures, and then you have maybe an hour and a half, an hour minimum before the temperatures really jump up on an Ironman bike course. Could be longer. Could take, let's say if the swim starts at 6.45 or 7, you're done at 8.30, let's say riding your bike. So by the time it gets to 11, it doesn't really get any type of sweltering, humid heat. So you can get a fair ways, uh, three hours through the bike in order before you really start hitting the big temperatures. But in Kona, because you're swimming in water that's already 78, 80 degrees, you quickly rise with that core. That core temperature quickly rises. You have a swim skin on, you have a swim cap on, so the heat is being maintained in the body. And after that hour and 20 hour swim, you know, 55 minutes, doesn't matter. You have built up quite a dehydration factor already. Then you get on the bike, it's already 80 degrees, right? Right from the first pedal stroke. And then the temperature on the body is already very high within 45 minutes, an hour. And that's what makes it truly different, that you're in that heat so much longer. The other aspect to keep in mind is when you're in heat in general, um, just because the air temperature says 75, if you look at your Garmin or whatever, by computer you use and you look at the temperature on it because it's in the sun and the same way the sun is hitting your skin and your body as you're riding, it is pretty hot. So let's say your Garmin display shows um, 90 despite the air temperature being 78. Well, despite you moving at 28 miles an hour, it's still 90 shining on your body and skin. Of course, there's a cooling effect with water and sweat and so forth, but that doesn't mean that the surface area that you are in the sweltering sun is getting hit by 90, but the sweat and the water on you gives you the sensation of cooling off. So there's a difference, and ever so gently, that core temperature keeps coming up and up and up. Add to it that after a while, the water isn't quite as cold as when you grabbed it from the aid station within, let's say, I would say eight to 10 minutes, it's no longer cold. It's um, not hot, but it's warm. And so again, it's not bringing your core temperature down. All this is a long way to say that your nutrition strategy in the heat is quite different. Oftentimes it requires a lighter approach. Um, you don't want to be full or bloated or have any type of distress GI or even hydration distress or stress on you in any way. So if you're clearing and if you're 
hungry, and if you're able to maintain your senses of thirst and hunger in those hot, humid, um, brutal, exposed conditions, that's a great sign. So, but this also ties into the theme of this question. These are very individual questions for you, Alvaro, with regards to Kona. Um, what have you practiced in the past? What has worked in the past? Um, not even necessarily for Kona, but in your training as you're getting ready. What's your experience in the heat? All those things. Um, how do you usually approach a bike ride and a run in the heat and hot and humid conditions? Do you maintain a strategy for when the temperatures are cooler and then once you hit a certain point, you back off? Because that's a quite a common strategy in Kona. Um, do you try to eat early and then back off and keep the calories and slow, slowly back off those calories? Um, so nutrition-wise, a lot going on there. Are you a secretor of a lot of sweat? Um, and within that sweat, sodium content, what's happening there? So how do you hydrate with that? Now, of course, you can imagine you need a lot more hydration. But where does it go from there? Is it electrolytes? Is it sodium? Is it water? How are you pouring water on you? Do you like to ride wet and with wet shoes? Because pouring water on you and on your legs has a quite a powerful effect for a few minutes to sort of shock you out of the lethargy of being in the heat. So many, many different strategies. Um, I definitely don't do a bike at a pace or percentage of threshold. It's based off of past experiences and knowing that that heat in Kona will slow you down dramatically if you try to hold wattage. All the years I've tried to hold wattages there, the numbers have been all over the board. And if anything, you get frustrated as of 75, 80 miles um, because you're just worn down um, and... Um, fatigued in a different way at that point that far into your day even if you do a five-hour bike split in Kona you're still six hours seven hours exposed into the heat and the temperatures core and humidity because of the swim and the time out there in such a um, tropical warm humid environment so the the fatigue on you is much greater earlier in the race right? Usually you don't hit that, oh my gosh, I'm overloaded on heat. I'm over it. I'm done. Your, your eyes of balls are exploding behind your sunglasses and under the hat and you're doing the ice thing. Usually that's on the run, um, pretty far into the run where it's just you're over it. Here in Kona, in most cases, it happens late in the bike um, where you just are so hot and you're so tired of being in it that you start getting a little shaky out there not because of hydration and fluids but uh, and of fuel but more because exposure it's exhausting it's fatiguing so these questions um, are hard to answer without knowing you as an athlete and I would never go on a percentage of threshold for any race because again it's a number that we cling to and if we cling to it too long um, the day becomes frustrating and our best potential athletic self doesn't necessarily come forward on that day. The other thing with Kona is it's a unique day. 
It's different than any other Iron Man in the world because the level of competition gives you a perspective of like that you really aren't that you're struggling against so many people and you realize wow this really is the world championships because everybody here is fast everybody here has experience everybody here knows what they're doing everybody here you know has a plan and got here with a pretty significant build-up the other thing i would also say with kona is your fitness if you really want to go after kona has to be deeper than anything you have ever felt before. The years that I got had the most success in Kona, whether the years racing pro um, with some you know, top 30, top 40 results overall, um, were years that I was incredibly fit. I spent weeks and months doing some ginormous volume um, in order to make that day as a non-substantial from a fitness and durability question as possible so that instead I could focus on all the other things. I wanted fitness to be the last thing on my mind. I wanted fitness to be something that I could check the box on and feel quite confident in that it will take care of me if I just put myself in a position to um, then execute the strategy, put myself in a position via pacing, via feel, the ability to stay arrow for most of that course because of such brutal winds, the ability to fuel and hydrate appropriately, not over, not under. Um, you do all that right, you get to the run and you have an opportunity to test your legs and then not running the first part of the course too aggressively back in the high humidity spots, the unshaded standing air feels like 105 with no shade um, and running through that and just, just being able to slice through the air because let's say a rain shower came through earlier in the day and now it's so humid and so hot and you can't hide from it. And again, because late in the bike, you're already over it with the sun and the exposure and the core temperature and your head exploding. Um, now you're another hour into it because of running and there's less cooling effect on it. You're just going um, aid station, meaning mile to mile and managing yourself. So getting through all this and understanding that if I have the durability, the fitness, I can work on my mindset and stay present and push through and persevere and put one foot in front of the other. But while that one foot in front of the other is not slow, it's just what naturally comes about because of the fitness and that that then is good enough. Um, I've had years in Kona where it's been something like a 305 and 307 and 309 marathons where despite not feeling well early on, just trusting in the leg turnover, just trusting in my form and just trusting in the pace and managing and managing further and further into the run in order to get to a point where then I feel a little bit better. I feel some connections happening in my stride and how I'm running and I feel lighter on my feet. And from there, then being able to find a significant steady pace that lasted 
for 10, 15 miles. Um, very rarely does it last, last for all 26 miles in Kona because of the course and the exposure and the difficulty and the hills and energy lab and so forth. But yeah, so unfortunately, I can't give you very good input there, but I hope I gave you enough of um, a picture to be aware of going into it. This is the first year in many years, I would say, in probably about 20, 25 years. No, not 25. That's exaggerated. In about 20 years that I'm not in Kona in October, but it's good. It's time. Um, I haven't raced, obviously, all those years, but I've been there coaching for many, many years as well. And um, not this year. I'm taking a year off of Kona. I'm going to see what the rest of the world is like for those five, six days in October. So not really an answer for you, but um, yeah, that's just not how I would coach and prepare somebody for Kona. Now, if it's your first time, as many of my first time athletes in Kona know, I always say, don't even think about numbers. Don't even think about placing. Don't even think about your overall time. Go and have fun experience the circus of the biggest Ironman triathlon show on earth with everybody there on the holy grounds of triathlon where it is there in the Kona Bay and swimming that swim and riding that bike ride and running that iconic run and finishing that race down Ali'i Drive and Hot Corner and into the finish line and the support and the craziness of the week leading up to it and the underpants run and all the things and the morning swims and the 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 the, the machismo on Ali'i Drive the days before and what people are doing on um, the Queen K and how they're motor pacing and the big groups of people riding and there's so much stimulus. It is such an experience to go, go have fun, go experience it, go live it, take it all in and then someday hopefully next year or the following year that you come back and go with a bit more intention once you've experienced it and felt it and had sort of the, oh my gosh, that was a crazy, crazy week I just had in Kona. It was incredible. It was powerful. It was motivating. It was humbling. It was overstimulus. It made me feel, I mean, like I said, I've been to Kona 14 times as an athlete, from winning age groups to being first American overall amateur, um, to, I mean, all kinds of pretty good results. Every year I go there and it's like the first few days, you're like, whoa, everybody looks pretty fit. <laughs> I wonder if I'm going to be able to, you know, keep up with my fitness. But then you sort of settle in and you go, hey, wait a moment. We all got here. I got here the way I got here. I'll be fit enough. It'll all work out. I did my work, you know. But just seeing the hoopla and seeing how fit people are, seeing how fast their bikes look and seeing how much they spent on their animal helmets, which I didn't, or seeing their support groups and how everybody's friends with everybody and they're all fast. Um, it's overwhelming. And now, and I was one of those people who was pretty fast there. 
but it's still like a punch in the face and a punch in the gut when you get there because you're like, whoa, everybody looks pretty intense and serious and fit and fast. But um, yeah, so enjoy. Enjoy it if it's your first. It, soak it all up. One, you never know if you're going to be back. You never know. Life has a weird way with twists and turns and circumstances that you might not be back. And to limit yourself on one of the most unique experiences and fun aspects of this sport um, to being too serious and focused on the numbers on your first and possibly only visit, I would, uh, I would always recommend just have fun. Soak up the hard work you've done. Um, embrace it. And just feel pride that you're there and get to live it and experience it as an athlete. So, all right, enough of that. Let's uh, jump on to the next question. I had an athlete last week, two weeks ago, um, reach out to me with regards to going to Nice for the 70.3 World Championships. And we were talking about time zone changes. And I wanted to remind people sort of what the what my approach is for bigger time zone changes. So living in California, when we went to Attilo in uh, 2017, Rich and I, yeah, 2017, um, was one of the times I pulled back and uh, because it was a short window that we went there. Let's say for an Ironman in the past, I'll get there a week prior. So the the window of time change isn't so aggressive. I can sort of dive into it a little bit less aggressive. But we had a short window. We got there, boots on the ground, I would say 48 hours prior. And so I went back to an old swimming approach with um, time change and trying to perform at your best and uh, being able to manage and control what you can control. And so for this athlete, and for most of my athletes that do something as sudden as this, um, for her from Colorado in this case, um, it was uh, uh, nine, it was eight hours time change to Nice. So, and she was also going to land, uh, I think, a day or two prior. So, two days prior, excuse me. And so, when you hit the ground, then you basically have to be on time, on the time zone maybe one or two off, but not necessarily eight hours off, so that your 6 a.m. is there 2 p.m., so that when they're going to bed at 9 p.m., for you it's one in the afternoon. It's just very um, dramatic on the body, so you want to definitely, there's not something you can just sleep into if you only have 48 hours. It's not something you can just sleep ahead for as aggressively because you're well rested when it's that big of a difference. Can you do a three hour time change and get a good amount of sleep the days prior and then just get one night or two nights of less sleep or interrupted sleep because of the time zone change? That's fine. But 48 hours, eight plus nine plus hours in difference, um, we went through it just like we did, Rich and I, with Attilo two, uh, two years ago. And that is, because for us it was nine-hour time change. Um, so we wanted to be basically on the time zone um, uh, three, two days prior when we got, got there. So that meant 11 days out, 
we started working on our nine hours of time changes. So that means nine hours uh, meant going to bed an hour earlier and waking up an hour earlier for the last nine days before heading over. Now you might say with kids and life, how is that even possible? Agreed. It is very hard. But in many cases where people and athletes, people, where athletes have been working a year towards this outcome, or they really want to have the best possible performance on site, um, you know, they're able to work through it. The first few days, it's not that hard. So then getting to the last five or six, five or four days, that's when things get weird. But again, it's better than leaving a week prior and not even being there because a week prior, then you're sure you're on site, but you're not as nearly as effective with time and not nearly effective with adjusting to the sleep pattern. So one hour bed to bed earlier, one hour up earlier. So it was typically I get up at five, then I got up at four, three, two, one. Eventually I was getting up at midnight, right? Or around midnight and going to bed around four in the afternoon. That was like the last day at home or two. And um, that way, if going to bed, uh, waking up at midnight is waking up at 9am in Sweden, that's pretty close. And in this case, for this athlete for Nice, um, going to bed at midnight, the last night at home meant uh, waking up at midnight, the last night she got, uh, she was home is 8am Nice time. That's as close as you're going to get realistically. So Yes, the last two, three days got a little weird because you're, you know, you're going to bed at 5 p.m. in the afternoon. But it is a lot more possible when you do it gradually, when you're training and you have some fatigue, when you're tapering and you need to catch up on some sleep um, and your body just absorbs it and it's in a dark room and you've created the atmosphere. It's also a lot easier to make these changes with your sleep patterns if you um, are in your own bed and in your own environment and just can change your routine to an hour earlier every day. Throw in a different routine, a different breakfast location, a different bed, a different room, different sounds, different temperature, different elevation or not, everything while you're already in Europe and trying to adjust to the time. Again, you're making it harder and not controlling the things you can control. So if the only thing we're changing is an hour to bed earlier and waking up an hour earlier, but we're in our bed, we're in our routine, we're in our environment, we're in, in our morning coffee or whatever breakfast routine or training routine, we're in our own sheets and sleep the same way and can control all those things, you're going to have a much higher success ratio likelihood of, um, quickly getting on the new time zone, then you will, um, if you try to do it on site. And that's what a lot of us did as swimmers. When we were going to some international events, a lot of time zones away, then the, the swim coaches would ask us, um, do you prefer to get on site? Or do you prefer to stay home? And for us, it was about down the middle where you'd say, I'd rather stay home, adjust to the time, swim in my pool, control all the variables and get there three, four days in advance versus 11, 12 days in advance. 
you know, as masters athletes now where we all have families and jobs and so forth, A, taking a lot less vacation days and saving those for the family, B, still being present and around the family and home life, even though there's some weird sleeping hours, they can understand that, but you're there, you're you're present, your body, your being, your love, your persona, your humanity is there. So also a way better way to go about it. So um, yeah, that's sort of how to approach big time changes and athletic performance. And I've had so much success with this. I had an athlete go to uh, Everest in April. Uh, yeah. And she did the full turnaround, door-to-door, top of Everest, and back home to her work in two weeks. Seven in, seven out days. And um, also, very important for her, since she was in an extremely tight Everest window, for her to get that time change going. Again, so that she can focus on other things on the mountain, other logistics, other concerns, other things that are plan for uncontrollables that come up and then you're still present aware rested alert and can make good sound decisions i do the same thing with military operators all across the board um, not that they have a 14-day window where they're told all right you need to get over there and be on the time schedule they don't know that but it's a good routine for them to go through they do it frequently probably about three times a year just to stay in that controllable environment and make notes and observe how they are what is the best sleep approach for them it's the same thing with the kona athlete before if you've paid good enough attention and if you make diligent notes you don't need these numbers or percentages of threshold of pacing you've been training you've been observing you've been applying you've been adjusting you've been going harder or easier you've been eating more or less you've been drinking more or less you've been training in hot environments with extra clothes you've been sitting in a sauna you've been riding your bike in a swimming pool indoor swimming pool to simulate the humidity you've been riding in the middle of the day or running in the middle of the day with extra clothes on to sweat extra much to get a better sense of how the wattage is that you can hold after four hours because that's when the cardiac drift happens and blah 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 right all those inputs that you're making notes of that's what I did for 10 years trying to figure out Kona to the best of my ability to continue to expand and grow and learn and apply and adapt and adjust and reapply and readjust and so forth and so it's the same thing with sleep patterns understanding what works best for you for your best possible outcome all right this next one's a pretty long one um i'm going to try to blow through the letter i'm writing you all the way from yep you guessed it sunny australia even though it's meant to be winter here ah bliss i guess you would say i finally got the courage and inspiration to write you to you after listening to pretty well all of your podcasts and feeling like i'm one of your athletes Please, nobody ever worry about how you communicate with me. Shoot me an email, shoot me a tweet, whatever you, however you want to communicate. I um, I get them all. I read them all. I enjoy them all. I love it all. Again, community, um, support, helping each other. However, I can contribute. So, it's not a question of courage. Please, just right away, and not right away. Write 
<laughs> feel free to write me, send me a note, and I'm glad to answer any questions. It's sort of what I do. Only a few short months ago, the word endurance, let alone ultra-endurance, was a very foreign concept to me. I've come from a strength and condition background. I've always loved throwing the weights around. I've always had a common perception that even if I did a touch of cardio, I would lose my hard-earned muscular gains. So I still well and clear of the forbidden cardio area. I was progressing in the same way each year, bulking up in the winter, shredding in the summer. I was sitting around 90 kilograms and couldn't even run around the block. How do I know? How do I know I couldn't run around the block? I tried and failed. <laughs> yeah, that's the question, right? Sorry, this is where I go into tangent. What is fitness? And how do you define the fittest person? Is it the endurance athlete? Is it the strength athlete? Is it the combination of the two? Is it human-powered athletics? There's so much that goes into this. I'm always so fascinated by it because, um, you know, there's it's the age-old argument and where do you take it? Like, where do you start? And what do you decide? Is it swimming? Is it biking? Is it running? Is it human powered? Is it strength? Is it, um, you know, Spartan races and other feats of um, that display power and ability and all that? I mean, there's so much that you can take this input on. But I do have some ideas and thoughts around it. And it's something that down the road, I might have a idea or event idea or some thoughts around but that's not for today um where are we uh during a catch-up with my fa family my ever persistent father was again trying to pester me into committing to a complete to complete a team event with him where he would kayak and i would do the run section the problem the run was 21 kilometers dad i can't even run around the block let alone a bloody half marathon my brother had competed in the same event with him the year prior, and he now felt it was my duty to do it. Talk about passing the buck, bro. After many weeks of my dad asking, texting, calling, I eventually caved. Fine, I'll do the stupid race with you. We had 20 weeks until race day, and I decided then and there that if I was going to do this race, I was going to give it my best effort. I started my training straight away, but knew I was in a bad way. I was carrying excess unnecessary weight in the form of muscle. I couldn't even run for 15 minutes straight and had no idea to even train for an endurance race. How? Um, was it the same as weight training? Progressive overload? Go hard every session? Go harder and harder and harder until you see some progress? We all know that's not the answer, right? <laughs> I started slow, very slow. Technique is important in the gym, and I assumed the same was for running, so I did my due diligence and researched all the aspects of that make a good runner, forever working on my technique. Pause. So while that's admirable and doing a lot of research is nice, but getting a good visual explanation or good visual input on what good running form looks like, don't try to emulate it. Get going on running. And you guys all know from how I talk on this podcast, um, your, 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 your momentum and you doing it a lot will help you become more efficient in your stride, will allow you to start working out the kinks of running the best possible technique for you, right? As any good running coach will tell you, there is no perfect form. You look at the top 10 marathoners at, let's say, a Berlin or New York or the Olympics, 
All of them have subtle little differences. You can claim some of them overstride. You can claim some of them lean forward. Some of them are perfectly upright. Some of them have weird upper body positioning. Some of them land different, but they figure out the lightest, most efficient, economical, durable way for them to run. And I bet you when they close their eyes, they see themselves running beautifully. And that's the key. The fact that you know what good running looks like, that you internalize it, and that you think of these things while you're out running. Not that you see it in a mirror and try to do exactly that, but that you visualize yourself running like that. And that already will have a huge impact. Your body will continuously make small strides to running very pretty, efficient, economical, like the videos, like the pictures show. And the best runners are the ones that can combine those two. They feel themselves running light, um, elegant, and technically sound. They might not be. I am an ugly runner. I can see myself running ugly from a mile away whenever I see a video of me or see any type of footage on an iPhone or something like that. But also everybody who knows me knows they can see my running style from a mile away. It's not pretty but it's always treated me very well. It's gotten faster and faster because I visualize myself running a certain way. If I close my eyes and see myself running, I see myself running in a different form, stride, technique, gait, economy, and elegance than I'm actually doing. But those visualizations and those individual sensations help me continue to hone in on feeling like that and therefore also partially running like that. And I also never want you to study too much and not be out there doing something, engaging. Um, I started very slow, blah, blah. Running 3K was torture. The first three weeks were horrendous and I was overthinking everything. There you go. Such as foot placement, posture, cadence, pace. I probably looked like a newborn giraffe. Exactly. I stuck to it knowing that I committed to this race and if I didn't put in the time and then it would show come race day and I would really pay for it then. I knew I couldn't hide from it on race day, so I had no choice. And like you say in your po podcast, you gotta do the work. Love that. Um, 3K, 3K slowly turned into 5K, which morphed into the 7K. Slowly, I was starting to see progression. I hit 12K, which was the furthest I'd ever run and took the time to relish this milestone. Very good, very important. We often overlook the time to relish milestones, to realize what we're accomplishing, to feel proud. Who cares what others think? You know where you've come from. You know where you started from. You know the work you've done. And take a little bit, whether that's a recovery week and reflecting and thinking back like, man, I used to struggle with 3K. Now I run 400% more <laughs> in a matter of, whatever weeks and months. It's an accomplishment. It's progression. It's getting better every day. It's learning, observing, exploring, and growing exponentially, especially early on. We learn so much. Um, only for a moment, though, because I knew I needed to do almost double that amount come a few weeks' time. Only, only two weeks until race day, and I had already completed a 19-kilometer training run. Great. I knew I had this race in the bag and was looking forward to race day, seeing it as, as a celebration to do with my dad. What a special event it would be to do, right? 
Um, my dad and I had a very good relationship and we joke around a lot. We always pull pranks on each other and my dad called two weeks before our race saying the race had been canceled. I thought he was pulling my leg. Apparently there was lack of interest in this year's race, so they had to cancel it. We have both trained so hard for this race and gone through all the weeks of training and couldn't complete this race. We're both looking forward to. We both were very goal oriented and I, we needed a new goal ASAP. My mom and dad had completed many Ironman events and when we were growing up, and I'm not sure exactly sure how it came up, but my dad said, what about a 70.3? Dad has had two full hip replacements. So I said stupidly, you won't be able to do the run. It was the best thing I could have said to motivate him. Nothing like someone telling you you can't do something to motivate you. We unofficially signed up and began training straight away. I started to devour as much knowledge of triathlon as I could, and it became clear I was in an unknown world, and I have a million questions. Some of which, and here we go. So um, there's a lot more to this letter, but I wanted to sort of lead into those questions. I need a training plan designed for only me taking into account my strengths, swimming, and my weakness, no cycling experience. Well, I would just go heavy, heavy on the cycling. The remainder of the time is running and then occasionally fit in some swimming. As you get closer to the event, maybe swim twice a week. But the rest of the time, spend your time on the event time where it's a 70.3 Five, six of the hours are spent running and biking. The swim, those 35 to 45 to 50 minutes, not really as much time to be gained or lost and worth training for. How do I periodize my training plan to ensure I reach race day in my peak fitness? Well, do some significant builds, two, three weeks, then recover. Then do the next build, maybe a little bit more volume than the previous build, then recover. And you'll get to a point where you feel pretty good about doing, and let's say, an 80K bike with a 10K run on the back end. Um, no, excuse me. Um, usually I say 10 mile. Um, 80K bike with, let's say, a 16K run off the back end. You're ready. You can simulate that at the end of a training week or in a training week with the buildup of volume. You're ready to do 90 and 21 on a rested, tapered, um, healthy body. Um, What is the best way to learn to cycle as a beginner? Is it just time spent on the bike? Yes. Should I be doing intervals? No. Should I be riding hills of my, if my 70.3 course has no hills? You can because hills are an easy way to um, get stronger while you're doing your training, but also If you live in an area with hills and it's too complicated to constantly avoid those hills, ride the hills. Again, this is for fun. You're not looking to win. Well, you're looking to beat your dad. But um, that being said, yeah, ride the courses that you enjoy, what's logistically easy. You have a family. You have other things to do. Um, If you have to get in your car or ride significantly out of your way to find a course that matches what you're going to be racing on, That makes training and the time commitment more difficult. I want you sticking with this. I want you being in this sport for a while. And logistics are often the reason why people drop out of it. Um, 
But I mean, of course, occasionally riding a similar course to see how you're doing on the flats and a similar profile will just build your confidence and make you feel better about knowing you can do the distance effectively. How do I increase my average pace, average pace each ride? Don't. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to get more efficient, more economical, more fit. Um, same as in strength training. You don't look to add more weight every single time you work out. Maybe you want to do it cleaner. Maybe you want to do it um, faster. Maybe you want to recover quicker the next time you do it. And all those ways are seeing that you're getting fitter and adapting to the training. You're not always throwing more plates on and more plates on and more plates on because guess what? After three, four weeks of that, you're no longer putting any more plates on. You've reached your limit. And so then you again, yeah, back to having to do it cleaner, better, stronger, smoother, technically sound. So focus on technique, fitness, economy, efficiency, repetition, volume, things like that before thinking about going faster. If you get to a fitness level where you're doing all those things pretty proficiently, then you'll be plenty fast when you ask your body to be fast. Um, how much strength training do I do each week coming from a lifting background of six times per week? How about nothing? <laughs> strength isn't your limiter. You'll be fine for 12 weeks without strength. A lot of the work you're doing on the bike and pounding the pavement running and swimming with your upper body is plenty of strength work for now. It's not something you want to spend your time on. Um, do I need to get a bike fit? Yeah, I mean, if you plan to do this for a while, getting a bike fit and being comfortable, efficient, economically sound on the bike, a bike fit dramatically helps with that. It'll make you feel better. It'll make you feel more powerful. You know that you're set up right. A good bike fit saves you not only a lot of training time, saves you a lot of headache, saves you a lot of discomfort, saves you a lot of annoyance, saves you a lot of questions, and saves you a lot of time in the race because you're comfortable, fit, and able to do the training, which will then translate to a better race outcome. Um, how do I practice transitions in a practical way? Well, you know, if you have a garage or a driveway <clears throat> or a parking lot and a car, you're fine. Spread it out in your trunk, spread it out in your car, spread it out on a towel or a bed sheet and lay it all out and come in with your bike, switch to your run gear, off you go. Good. Come running out of the house in a, in a wetsuit, <laughs> warning the neighbors before you do it. Not that they think you're some crazy person running around in a wetsuit and swim cap and goggles. But practice that and switch in the garage to your bike. How long does that take? Um, spread out a clean area and get prepared for that. Logistics-wise, easy to do. More a courage question and a logistics question for you to just go out and execute. But yeah, you can do it anywhere, anytime, in a very easy way. Most of us, um, well, I wouldn't say that. Many of us go in their car, if they live in the city, and drive with their car in order to start their bike ride. Great spot to prep a transition to a run. Because you're in a parking lot somewhere, you prep it all in your trunk, or in your car, or in your vehicle somewhere, and then you're ready to go when you come in off the bike, and you time that. And... If that takes X amount of time, you know in a race it'll be even smoother because it's laid out for you differently and that's the only thing you're focused on. What do I wear on race day? Well, you wear a triathlon outfit. There's plenty of companies that offer that. What do I swim in? Usually a wetsuit or a speed suit. Um, don't swim in your cycling clothes with that big 
um, diaper in the back of which in your cycling shorts called a chamois to make you more comfortable on the bike. Do tri suits weigh you down because they have a little bum pads? They do weigh you down, absolutely. So you wear a speed suit over it or a wetsuit if the water temperature is not hot enough. And you wear, yes, you wear that under your wetsuit, under your speed suit. Trying to put things on while you're wet and you just got out of the water well, is a waste of time. Um, might as well take the free time that's available. I'm ultra competitive. How do I pace myself so I don't blow up but still have a fast race? Well, <clears throat> you'll find out. Um, if you're ultra competitive, you should know this. You want to be ultra competitive, the 0.3 of the 70.3, where you are actually primed and positioned to have a good result. If you're too competitive, the first 0.3 of the 70.3, you're going to be walking on the 21K. If you're too competitive on the bike, um, you're going to be walking on the 21K. If you think you're going to have a result that's all of a sudden this magical result, you're going to be walking on the 21K. So instead, learn, explore, ex um, accept that you're not going to be great at this on your first attempt. Nobody ever is. And grow from there. If you enjoyed it and saw that you're somewhat competitive or you can see a path to how you can be competitive, you'll have, there's plenty of races and plenty of other opportunities. But trying to think that you're going to be competitive in your first one, not going to happen. Um, and I say that and in, in not to shatter anybody's dreams. It's just not a reality in this day and age. Maybe back in the late 80s, early 90s, were people coming in and winning stuff on their first try. Or, you know, age groupers at smaller races, absolutely. Um, but they usually had an athletic background in one of the three sports, so it was easily translated to something like endurance, like a 70.3 like uh, um, Colin O'Brady, for example. He was a competitive NCAA Division I swimmer before he did his first triathlon, and he prepared and trained a lot and like that, and he came in with that sort of grit and determination in an Olympic distance, no less. In Olympic distance, if you swim off the front, there's not enough real estate if you swim well enough up off the front um, versus the others. Not enough real estate for them to catch up and you're somewhat talented as a biker and a runner not necessarily the best but talented enough that those three four minutes that you created a gap are going not going to be easily caught up and then oftentimes those mistakes are made on the bike meaning that those people who want to try to catch up they blow it on the bike now they spent those two three four minutes trying to catch you on the bike and guess what us swimmers we laugh at that point because we often can run if we're in this in a competitive environment and knowing that you just even the field you might be a better runner than me but you just wasted a lot of energy to try to catch up to my swim time on the bike and now we're at a level playing field now you're tired from having tried to work harder and having worked harder to catch me i can run my run I biked my bike because you were trying to catch me and I have a chance now because you're more fatigued because you tried to do all the catching up and being competitive in the only in a smaller real estate. As you guys have heard from me before on Ironman triathlon, especially if you're not a good swimmer, it doesn't ruin your race. 
If you're not a good swimmer and you try to catch up on the bike, well, you're not going to have a good outcome. You have 138 miles after the swim to gradually put yourself back to the front and win, whether it's by one second or 10 minutes. Use all the real estate available to you and your strengths to do the placing and get the outcome and achieve the result you're looking to achieve. Don't try to do it in the first 10 miles of the bike. Happens every year in Kona. It's fun to watch people blow up like that because they're surprised either that the swimmers are that far in front or that they think they have to jump on the train early. And, you know, they still have a marathon. They have probably 30 miles on the back end of the bike and a marathon to still do plenty of catching up. And there's so much catching up to be done. Patrick Lang got... Um, not only one Kona, but when he got third and he ran that 242, he was like 30th place off the bike. I mean, tons of time behind everybody. Ran himself to third place. Sure, it helps that you can run a 239 marathon on the back end, but he was patient. He conserved his energy and applied his energy and his strengths to the right part of the course to the right part of the real estate where he knows he can have the biggest impact. He knew he's not going to have it on the bike and he was way back after the swim. So I digress. The race in the Australian heat, how will that affect my body being a heavy sweater? <laughs> back to the previous question. You will not be ultra competitive because if you don't learn to slow down, you will overheat and you will be walking. So you got to learn to train in it and observe what happens and how you adjust and compensate for it with hydration and sodium and electrolytes and fueling and properly pacing and giving yourself a governor with heart rate and knowing what you're doing out there. Otherwise, yeah, back to walking a lot in 21K. And finally, why is triathlon so expensive? This is an expensive sport. I just bought a Cervelo S5. Yeah, well, if you choose to buy a Cervelo S5 <laughs> and not get it on eBay used from all the people who bought a Cervelo S5, realize that it's an expensive sport, realize they're not competitive, realize that they do it in a hot environment, they're not made for it, realize it takes a lot of training, realize it takes a lot of time, realize they can give up the strength training, realize that they have to do some swimming and biking and running and train a fair amount of hours for this in order to be competitive. <sighs> Those people is who you buy your bikes off of on eBay. <laughs> so, but anyway, I hope I answered a bunch of questions here. There's a lot more of the story to this. And um, he's about to race probably in about two weeks. So it'll be fun to see. And we'll go from there. I've brought this up before, but it seems to come up frequently. And that is race selection. And how does a coach or how do I help my athletes with regards to their race selection? Well, this is a difficult topic to be working on because every athlete has their own personal life schedules, their own work, their own requirements. And so just because I might have some cool ideas, um, it depends on time of year, it depends on budget, it depends on fitness, it depends on how scary they want to go, it depends on their ability of past um, adventures in the endurance space and how far beyond that they want to push, if they want to go faster, if they want to go longer, if they want to qualify, if they have a um, result in mind, if they have a time in mind, if they have placing in mind. That's just one area of it. Now throw into it 
that you might also have, you know, time of year and kids activities or budget concerns or, you know, how to get to the location, whether the location is, even if it's local, um, how to make it work with regards to motivation. Um, if it's not something challenging enough, oftentimes that turns into something that um, it doesn't keep them motivated and focused on their training and their growth and their progression for long enough. So actually, I defer to my athletes and have them, in many cases, come up with a few ideas and a few suggestions or a few um, directions they want to head it. Is it swim run? Is it ultra trail running? Is it triathlon adventures? It's a, is it something ultra endurance? Is it something self-curated? Is it self-created? Um, um, is it something that is familiar, but you want to do it faster? What are the desires and interests of the athlete and then our exchange continues to go back and forth. But even there, I'm very careful to not um, push an athlete in a certain direction because I don't ever want it to be in a situation where a coach sort of not pressures because I don't think that's ever the case. We're all gr adults. We're all grown-ups. And if we choose to do something, it's not because we got pressured into it by the coach. But I want the athlete to be excited about what they chose and to be motivated and excited about the path, the journey they're going to be going on. Because for me to get too involved in that process, I'm not on the training journey. It has to be meaningful to you, the athlete. It has to take you someplace deeper and really keep you connected to that training as well as the curiosity of finding out how fit you can be. We're not all in this place anymore where we're in our teens or 20s where you're just sort of uh, doing something for the first time and venturing into it. Most of you are doing something with intention and curiosity, with a sense of adventure, and most importantly, with a sense of, I wonder what I can do. I wonder what is possible. I wonder what I'm capable of. And so once you throw all these ingredients and this, all these mixtures of different inputs into um, the discussion, that back and forth eventually brings out in the athlete what they are truly curious about, where they are heading with this, what they're looking to do, and how they're trying to go about this next phase of not training, but also self-discovery and finding out what they're capable of as endurance athletes and tie that in lastly and you guys probably know what i'm going to say right now that this is a question of where you currently are right the current athlete version of you helps dictate where we might be going with regards to our endurance adventure I would never want to put somebody into a position of jumping too far ahead of who they are in the now because it also sets them up for um, not necessarily failure, but I would say disappointment of A, how the training is suddenly increased or gotten more complex or puts more demands on the body, life, um, personal life, all those things, or that it's also too much of a stretch with regards to who we currently are as a parent, as a professional. And so being able to keep that three-legged stool somewhat um, level 
is the importance there. If you take on an adventure that all of a sudden will require that the um, athlete leg of the stool becomes super, super long because it is a huge endeavor. Exactly, right? You guys know what will happen. So yeah, it ties into who you are now, what you've developed to as an athlete in your current athletic version of yourself and what that endurance adventure looks like. So that is why I rarely get involved or have a direct suggestion as to what the next event is. I love the discussion. I love being engaged in the discussion and participating in it and being asked. But I always push back that most of the information and most of the determination is made by the athlete. Another topic I've brought up before on the podcast, but a good reminder And this is my own personal preference, but it's something that does frequently come up in emails or training peak updates from my athletes. And that is they get a flat tire and their CO2 either runs out, doesn't work, or something else happens and they don't have a pump. And I can't um, reiterate enough how useless, (laughs) in my opinion, um, CO2 cartridges are. Sure, they're great to have in a race to do it quickly, but a hand pump, the type that you can get up to 80, 90 PSI, um, enough to get to any bike shop or home at least, or continue on a ride until you get a chance to get some air in those tires, um, you never have to worry. And they're small enough, they fit in your jersey, you don't have to attach them to your frame or anything like that. Or some people might want to. And you never have to worry about CO2. You never have to worry about how it fits or uh, being out of it or getting an extra flat or another flat. You have your gear, you have your extra tubes, and off you go with a pump. And it's so often that a workout is compromised or something comes up that the athlete then either they forgot their CO2 or whatever it is. (laughs) A good pump will help you. Um, in that scenario and quite honestly it's like a a part of the gear I put on my bike before every ride I put my pump and you know my extra tube in the middle pocket of my rear jersey I have an extra tube or two in my little bag below my seat attached to my seat so now I have enough uh, tubes for three flats and then I have my little hand pump that does plenty never had an issue with it especially these days those things get some serious torque going out of it um, going pretty quickly and I even saw something new these days it's a tiny little sort of hand pump but it's like battery operated you can take it with you on a ride you put it in your back pocket and it literally gets your tire up to 90 psi or 100 um, within 30 seconds and it's just this little battery operated pump as well sucks air in pushes it into your tire and done and oh no no it's not even battery up it's rechargeable so again the point i'm making is i don't like to rely on co2 cartridges um a they're terrible for the environment and b it's just sort of you either forget them you either waste them or you run out of them and you compromise what oftentimes could be a great day for a ride all right, well, here we are on our second conversation with Sonny on his build to his marathon. And 
This was a good conversation in prep for when we really kick into the phases of training like you might be familiar with when we went through the 50k plan. And so we're still a good 18 plus almost 20 weeks out still from his event in mid-January in Mumbai for the Mumbai Marathon. And so right now, and you'll hear this in the conversation, we're mainly focused around getting him the frequency of running, getting him familiar with my training plan, getting him in to listen to his body and feel and observe and notice what's going on so that he has the proper insights and feedback and input and observations from me via training peaks once he is also kicking up the volume and doing the training plan in a more earnest way. Not that he isn't training yet, but that with the demands of more marathon goal pace and inputs coming, I really need to hear back from him that he's how he is doing the training, how he's absorbing absorbing it, how he's recovering. Very common with athletes doing a marathon where the volume and the frequency of running jumps up so quickly. I mean, especially with Sonny, um, six months ago, he was running once a week. And so we want to be very careful with any type of injuries and overuse injuries and just ramping the volume too quickly. Already, this entire plan is a little bit too aggressive according to where I would like him to be. But we also put a line in the sand for mid-January, and we want that to be as successful as possible given the current version of athlete that he is, where he is in the now. And so right now, we're just getting frequency going, nothing too hard, nothing too specific, nothing too digging too deep, um, and we want to just get the body used to running a lot. And so once we dive into the plan, and once we're 16 weeks out, even 18 weeks out, and we start going into a structure of a weekly repetitive structure with, let's say, a two, three-week build and some recovery weeks, um, until then, we want to be careful, observant, and then have him be able to provide the feedback that we so desperately need. Because as I was alluding to earlier, I don't want athletes to just push the volume because it's on a piece of paper or in their training peaks. I want athletes to observe and adjust and let me know how they're feeling so that the, the plan can um, grow and adjust and adapt to what you're actually doing and absorbing. And so that becomes very important because that helps us avoid injuries. If there's a, um, six workouts on seven days on paper, but after three you feel that you're not absorbing it or you're not doing it with the quality or the output or the intention or the prescription as it's described, well, then I, as the coach, need to know and I can start looking at it, moving some things around because, again, there's no purpose in training just to train. We want to train in order to absorb the work, to come back stronger, and then do it at a faster, better, stronger, smarter pace, effort, um, approach. Hi, Chris. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really good. <laughs> it's good to be talking to you again. Yeah, well, we'll do a quick check-in today. See how we're doing on the training. See what questions you have and what you're noticing. And uh, keep rolling along here. All right. So how are you feeling? 
Um, I'm feeling good. Um, I've really been enjoying the workouts quite a lot. Um, there have been some unexpected things uh, which I have discovered um, in in the past two weeks. And, and today is uh, the 14th day of the training. So it's been exactly two weeks today. And um, um, in brief, um, I'm really enjoying the workouts. It started off um, initially, um, I was just recovering from my half marathon. Uh, my legs were not fresh and the first couple of days, the first couple of workouts, um, my knees were hurting and my legs were hurting, but my aerobic system uh, felt a lot better. And um, But from day five onwards, since the time we started, uh, since the time you introduced core training in the workout, I felt like my form got better. Also, by then, I was kind of getting used to the zone two workouts. So my legs were not hurting. Uh, that much. Um, although I have to say, um, <laughs> the EOs uh, yeah. had a little bit of. A <laughs> yeah, it's you know, fun. I, it, 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 it took a while for my body to figure out how Everybody to do that struggles with those. Everybody. And everybody's comments in Training Peaks is always if I put them in as a joke to see how funny we would look. Or yeah. um, if we ever did this on camera, it would be hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've done a lot of uh, different types of co-training um, in my life. And I, I think the EOs have to be probably the most challenging. How's the three-legged bridge? And the three-legged bridge, um, I have done some variation of it earlier. Okay, good. Um, Many so struggle with that. Many struggle with that the most. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I have to admit, I did struggle with it, but at least I had some experience with it earlier, yeah. like in different forms. Yeah, yeah. Um, in my uh, high intensity classes. Gotcha. Um, but um, I think the co workout for 30 minutes, it took me almost 45 minutes to complete uh, the six rounds. Okay. Um, I, I, I just couldn't do it faster than that. Because um, also, uh, I hadn't done like such a long co-workout session in a very long time. I Actually, I don't think I've done a half an hour co-workout session ever. Because co-workout is <laughs> always a part of the workout. Um, um, with maybe, you know, 10 to 15 minutes dedicated to your core, to your lower back and your abs and everything. Um, so it was nice. Uh, the the co-workout felt better as the rounds went on um, but initially it was a little bit of a struggle mm -hmm. but the run soon after immediately after the co-workout uh, was good um, I was my body was warmed up and I felt uh, I could just start my run quicker right from the get-go yeah so that so 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 that felt good um, yeah so by day seven, though, um, I think day seven was the first time when we uh, when you introduced me back to like a zone four workout, mm -hmm. and um, I was really looking forward to it uh, because I had been doing zone two for a while now, and I was starting to you know um, I don't know maybe get a little frustrated with the slow pace, 
um, and I really wanted to see if I can run fast uh, again. And of so course you could. Over to the, the... Sorry. Of course you could still run fast. Um, that did not like. I I was really looking forward to the zone four. Um, but I felt sluggish on that day, and um, I also felt um, it was difficult for me to transition from zone two to zone three to zone four. Yeah. Um, much, and I was very surprised learn. by that. You have a lot to learn still. And that's what the yeah. first few weeks of this training is. We're not into a real training plan since we're still like 20 weeks out. I think uh, next yeah. week we're 18 weeks out. So what we're doing now is just sort of getting familiar with all the different aspects of the running we will be doing so that when we start into the 16-week plan, um, nothing is completely new and you're familiar versus quite as frustrated with what you're seeing now. Because yeah. remember, there's nothing fast about running a marathon. And so it'll yeah. be quite difficult to keep yourself tempered um, you saw already how if you do half marathon training, um, to half, run a half marathon, that's also very slow. And if you run it too fast, yes. thinking off the 10K pace, you're going to be uh, walking or very slow the last three, four miles. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, by day 10, though, um, I started feeling a lot more comfortable with zone two my legs were not hurting as much my ankles and my knees were not hurting as much um initially the lateral side of my uh, my knees uh, was giving me a lot of pain and um i started squatting with my with my my toes facing uh, directly in front of my knees instead of uh, a normal squat where my uh, toes are almost like in a v-shape mm -hmm. and that seemed to help surprisingly uh i was just doing maybe some 10 air squats in a day and just holding the squat position in the bottom for a minute or two um that seemed to help uh, i think it's also um i think also my my legs and my body just got a little more used to zone two and uh, the sort of slow or heavy running uh, yeah. which um, zone two demands yeah. Um, well, and, and we want to get faster yeah, so, at zone two. So that's the, that's the entire point, right? So right yeah. now, what seems slow and heavy and yeah. awkward, um, for many, that's also walking. Um, yes. And you will have that more as you start doing more interplay between zone two and zone three and zone four, that when you go back to zone two, there will be a lot of walking required. Right. Yeah. Um, and and that's also uh, something I wanted to ask you. <laughs> um, because my heart rate just wouldn't go down. Uh, if I did like a zone three after uh, 15 minutes of zone two, hmm. uh, I, if I did zone three for three minutes, uh, for 10 minutes, um, my heart rate just wouldn't go back to zone two unless I started walking. Great. Um, Walking it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's your answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and uh, I was really enjoying all my workouts. And because uh, uh, every day felt like a new workout. Mm -hmm. um, and I 
I also started enjoying the zone two training and the the easy runs, which were forty five minutes long. Um, until I did my retest yesterday, um, I was kind of I don't know disappointed with it. I actually don't even know uh, why I'm disappointed because I know nothing about the retest. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but I felt um, I felt like my heart rate was unusually high from from my warm up itself. and um it might have something to do with the excess caffeine that i had over the weekend i don't know uh so so i was kind of disappointed i would never um, think that sunny it's just a number um you've not sure. done any testing yet so we had the right. one field test 2 weeks ago yeah. to get your zones and then this yeah. is the first one at a specific number um sure. the retest so We'll, yeah. we'll know more in five six weeks when you do that retest again and then the retest again sure but this means nothing this is just a number okay. yeah that's so um besides the training what else have you observed mm. are you else, eating uh, more are you eating more how are you sleeping all those things I, yeah so um like like i spoke to you last time uh, i felt like i was losing weight and um so i'm not losing weight anymore uh, uh, my weight is uh, at the same place where it was um, but i also realized that um in uh, in the process of trying to eat more calories i i also ended up eating a lot of um sugary foods um and a lot of uh, junk food um and i after a while um, you know i i could start feeling the the effects of that so i've i've gone back to eating my sort of healthy foods now and um so that was one one thing which i realized that um i don't want to go down that route of uh, you know dirty bulking is what they call it in bodybuilding yeah um Well and and again you can come to all these conclusions over a long term or you can come to yeah. them now but you will come yeah. to the same conclusions <laughs> yeah 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 so um i felt like okay cool um i i i did what i had to do i experimented and now now i know that's that's not where i want to go because it's not making me feel good good uh so that so that was one um a realization with food um i had a couple of questions about nutrition though let's um, go yeah yeah um i wanted to know um what uh should i have and what i should avoid uh during the run itself um i like things like even like water um how much water should i consume uh, should i have a sports drink Uh, or should i try and eat something uh, during uh, say like a 1 hour 15 minute run is it required to consume any calories or salts yeah, yeah anything so any run over 1 hour you want to eat about 200 calories for okay. that run so for an hour and 15 run you want to eat something during the run and that's 200 calories. If you run 2 hours, you want to have 
400 calories in that time somehow spread out. Okay. But any run shorter than an hour, no, you can go off your previous meal or just run on what you have stored in your body. Right. And then drink, okay. you should be between 500 and 750 milliliters per hour, again, after the first hour. So most of your runs right now don't require any food or drink. Right. Okay. Even the hour and okay. 20 on the weekend that I see you had, you could get by with a good meal, good breakfast or meal prior, uh, 60 to 90 minutes before you start your run, you have a good meal, and then um, that's plenty. Okay. Um, yeah, and that leads into my second question, which is, uh, what's a good pre-run uh, meal? Um, some, uh, because I've experienced on some days, my stomach was okay during the run, mm -hmm. and on some days, uh, I was getting cramps, I wasn't feeling good, and my heart rate was up. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, usually that's uh, because yeah. you're eating, you ate too close to your run, that your stomach would be distressed. But also, it depends on what you're eating. So, you want to keep the food simple, very simple bread, oats, um, toast, um, things like that, so that it's easily digestible. It's not a lot of stress on the stomach, let's say, like soups or spicy food or anything with a lot of salt or so forth so where the body has to work harder in order to um, when the blood is not going to the stomach and more towards the working muscles we want the food that is being processed and absorbed in the stomach and the gut to be quite easy simple boring bland right yeah okay i mean i, I should have known that because i had a a really spicy meal. There you go. This run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Yeah. I've got my answer. Yeah. Um, also, um, do you have any advice on a post-workout or a post-run meal? Um, um, I would just specific? eat healthy. I would not overthink that. Just eat okay. healthy, um, good, nourishing, nutritious meals. Um, many overthink this, you know? Um, it does not to need to be that complicated. Just you know what's good to eat and what's not good to eat, and then from there, um, you know, keep that in mind. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, some other thoughts that I had during uh, this period. Um, I want to ask you, should I invest in a heart rate uh, belt? like a heart rate strap versus I have a watch right now. Um, and sometimes that can take a while to actually give me my heart rate. Um, and it, it can take a while to catch up with my running. Do you think I need it? Or do you think uh, I can avoid that right now? I think you can, uh, I think you will eventually need a heart rate strap because the wrist is not going to be good enough. So as you approach the trainings for 16 weeks out and 12 weeks out, you will want the most accurate data as possible. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, posture. 
should I be worrying about it? I was, I've already started to notice that my posture improves each time after a core workout, uh-huh. uh, just on its own. Uh, so should I need to think about a certain posture or um, uh, should I even worry about it at all? I wouldn't overthink it right now. For now, I would just keep it as it is and we want to get the running frequency up and things will continue to improve as you become more familiar, economical and efficient with your running. And then as, again, this is your first run through, dry run attempt to going longer and more consistent. So making too many changes now while many might say, well, now is the perfect time to work on a better technique and form. But we want to first just run. This is my approach and how I think about it. And then we can make small adjustments after this training cycle. But first, let's get through this training cycle to see what becomes of your running posture and form and strength because the changes you will find in your first run through of 12 to 16 to 20 weeks of training might completely be different and change your posture and update your technique and you might run better than ever before but um, until we go through it and become efficient and lighter and do the volume um, I wouldn't want to make any changes so that those just become more changes if we um, need to due to the volume. Okay. Um, uh, the next thing that I was wondering about uh, during this period was uh, about recovery. Um, I was wondering if I should take any supplements. Should I go for massages um, or well, steam? There's a lot of things you can do. It's just the question: Are do you need them? And currently. Right. As long as you're getting good sleep, you're nourishing your body efficiently, and we want to continue to just do it so that you are absorbing the training the best you can. And does massage help? Of course. Is it needed? No. Um, does hot steam help and allow the body to um, cleanse itself and toxins and so on? Of course. But uh, then again, do you need it? No. So things like that, where you want to continue to think about well, am I better off just absorbing the training as it is and um, continue to build from there and do the work I need to do and get sleep and eat well and it seems to be working? Then save the money and time for that and let's do that when the volume is bigger. It's getting a lot bigger in many weeks. And so doing that now, um, unless you have niggles, unless you have injuries, unless you have tightness, unless you have needs, um, I would focus on sleep, good thoughtful training with the proper time and the proper fueling and the proper post-fueling and so forth and go from there. Okay. Um, uh, since you just mentioned it, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's your mental talk during the runs? Because sometimes um, my mind can go all over the place. And what I've noticed is that sometimes when, uh, so for example, the other day I was running and I was supposed to be in zone two and um, I was in zone two. And then I started thinking about uh, if I would be participating in any races and now during this training. And uh, for some reason, I started to speed up on my own 
without any control and i just realized that oh i'm out of zone too i need to slow down um and my mind can be all over the place um and some days i just don't feel it i just don't feel good while running um good do you have any it's not any supposed to feel good it's training it's not exercising yeah workouts this is a um a concern for many athletes they think every workout should feel good they think every workout should be um achievable um and that the outcome should come um almost naturally and that is not the case the case is very often that the training is hard to achieve it the outcomes are not achievable that's why it's training we want to grow to where it becomes achievable and so yes you are trying to become an athlete sunny and with that becomes it realizing that training is not enjoyable um all the time training in many cases feels like work it feels like a chore because again you're putting in what many months from now will be an outcome and so that day it might require diving into some hard work and things that don't feel good when you accumulate those sessions and at the end of the week you go oh, i'm glad i did it and i did actually enjoy it but while in it there will be many sessions with hard hard intervals or long long runs where you are not enjoying yourself but that's why it's training it's not exercising right and the self talk okay. is more around you know this is what i need to do to get things done um i know uh, that we are supposed to have a short talk today <laughs> so just let me know if you're coming up on time um well no i need I to give you i need to discuss the training with you but let's keep going on the questions we have a few more minutes sure um so i mean one of the things that happened was this difficulty in transitioning uh from zone 2 to zone 3 to zone 4 and um i just wanted to understand uh i think uh, uh listen to your previous podcast uh, they all use different energy systems um uh will this uh, get better with time because i'm just getting because i just started or do you think uh, we need to talk about this at all i don't think we need to talk about it we don't it's not going to help you to know what's coming. And what I mean by that sure. is we have no idea how your body will react. And the more you try to think about how it might react or what may happen, you're losing the moment of now and being present in the current training. Thinking about a future outcome, thinking about um what might happen or where that could be, I wouldn't think about that. And whether the transitions are hard or whether they're easy or whether you have to walk or that is just who you are now you can't change that you can't change your zone 2 and how you recover from zone 3 zone 4 work other than doing the work you can't outthink it you can't outprepare it you can only do the work and this is just scratching the surface of all the work we have ahead of us 
the hours you're doing now are maybe a third of what's coming ahead. You will be up to many, many, many hours a week, many workouts a day, two workouts a day, um, plus core, plus work around it, right? So um, to think about how your body is reacting to it now and where it might go, we don't know that. You don't have enough experience of training as an endurance athlete or for something like this. So it might take all the way up to the marathon by the time you properly recover from interval work because we have to build an engine that is so, you know, from scratch that is so new to this. It might take months. It might take years. We don't know. Yeah. Um, I was having this thought the other day. Uh, I just started off my workout and uh, and it felt like running is still so alien to me. Um, I thought I might start feeling like a runner uh, soon, <laughs> but it still feels um, it still feels challenging every time I start to run. What do you do um, for a living, Sonny? I'm an actor. Okay. So when you started acting. And if compared to what you're acting now, if you were asked to do the lines and do the roles and do the um, things that you're doing now as an actor versus when you started, would it be uncomfortable? Would it be unfamiliar? Would it be awkward? Uh, for sure. <laughs> there you yeah, go. Much there. more, yeah. You're not an athlete until you go through the motions and become an athlete. Um, it takes a while, right? You can have the mindset of an athlete. But for your body to catch up to where you want it to be, that's that's not fair to you and how you judge yourself. You can only be the athlete you are right now and get a little bit better each day and work on going forward to becoming that athlete someday in the future. But as we say, we don't know how or when. We just know you will. And so the rest will come in its own progression and its own path based off of the best you can do in the now. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So going forward here, we have yeah. um, the next two weeks until, so this week, when you're done with this week, you'll be 18 weeks out. So we're continuing to do some core work. Right now, core yeah. work twice a week and a variety of easy running. This is actually our week three of training. So we're starting to bump up the volume. Week one was only about three hours of running. Last week was four hours of running. And this week is four and a half almost of running. So that we're gradually bringing up the volume ever so gently. And then next week, you have your biggest week so far with five and a half hours of running and no rest days for the week. You're doing one, two, three, four, five, six days of running in a row. Um, we okay. continue to run after core, nice and easy, on one day. And on the other day, we're adding a little bit of a speed component, faster component to it, just so that we get familiar with running a little faster off of the core activation. Otherwise, we have a lot of zone two running for the entire week. One, two, three zone two runs. Um, and then one run where we once again go through each zone. We start easy, then we go zone two, zone three, and zone four. So, um, yeah, and then after that, after that week, we have a recovery week because we're then now 
one, two, three, four weeks into training, and we're going to bring it down dramatically that week to recover before we start our plan of 16 weeks out. And we'll go through the four weeks from there as our next sort of phase and cycle. So the next time you and I will talk will be on the recovery week as we go into the 16 weeks out. Okay. All right. Okay. So right that now sounds, the focus is frequency. Yeah. We want to bring up the running frequency. So the first week we had a rest day in the middle of the week. This week we have a rest day moving further back into the week so that next week we have only one rest day and we go a whole week without um, a rest day. So we're running six days in a row, which is very new to you since you only started doing three times a week and one time a week and two times a week a couple of months ago. Yeah. So um, that'll be a great time to get a recovery weekend after that first week of running every day besides one day um, of a re recovery day. And again, okay. you can see one, two, so of the five hours and 20 minutes, I would say uh, one and a half, two and a half, two forty-five, three thirty-five, four oh five. 450 of it is almost five hours of it is at zone two. So only okay. a little bit. That little bit on after core where you're running 10 minutes fast and that little bit on that one day where you're going through each zone, are you touching other effort levels? Right. So, and that's how it looks. And then 16 weeks out, we're going to start our first double days and we're going to start our first sort of working into marathon pace familiarity. But I'll go through those four weeks and what the purpose is and the desired outcome um, once we get on the phone in late September. Okay. Sound good? Sounds perfect. I'm looking forward to the training. All right. Um, and thank you. Thank of you, Chris, for I will... answering all my questions. Of course, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Until then, continue to fill out the training peaks on what you're observing. Take good care of the body. Make good notes, and that way we can continue checking in every two weeks. Yeah, okay. All right. Thank you. Good luck, Sonny. Thank you, Chris. Bye. Thank you, Chris. Of Bye. course. Bye. And so that's where we are with Sonny. And uh, I hope you get a good sense of where... He is currently what he's observing, some of the questions we dive into from fueling and hydration and um, nutrition as well, and just some of the early niggles and things he's noticing with his training. So enjoy this conversation, the second conversation with Sonny. And again, if you all have questions, let me know. I'd be glad to answer them separately on email. All right, enjoy. All right, I want to be respectful of time here, and we're getting up there in the minutes slash hours of this episode 115. So let's get a last email or two, and we'll see how we are with time. Hi, Chris. I've been frustrated. I've had a frustrating last two years trying to figure out self-coaching coming out of college. One pitfall, of course, is trying to train where I was, not where I'm currently fitness-wise. As many people who contact you, I heard about you through Rich Roll's book and podcast. 
the whole heart rate training I took for granted during college because I had my pace so dialed in that I that it only fluctuated by 30 seconds per mile on any given easy run across an entire season. As I'm trying to regain my fitness properly going into my third year out of college, the main question I have is, since I seem to have to fluctuate running, jogging, walking so much based on how my body feels and the temperature and humidity outside during a run, must be in the northeast for the summer, um, those wild fluctuations do not seem to be beneficial. Would a block of training exclusively on my bike or even on an indoor trainer to keep my heart rate controlled be beneficial and translate over to a better aerobic base and an easier controlled heart rate during my runs? Thank you, Keenan. Great question and valid question, but in order to get efficient, again, let's think of it real simple in big picture and not to exercise physiological or medical terms, anatomical terms. Your heart's pumping. And when it's pumping at a certain level, it's delivering oxygen to the working muscles via the blood and so forth. Blah, blah, blah. We've already gone through that plenty. But if you are thinking about how you're going about this, that is, in order to get more efficient, meaning that your heart has to not work as hard, i.e. do less work when it's running, you need to get efficient, economical in your running motion in order for it to do it at a lower heart rate. So, of course, a stimulus of a bike or an indoor trainer, even swimming, even hiking helps, but in order for you, because you're probably already a pretty efficient runner um, from running in college, it looks like, um, you need to think about how you get in the volume, the miles, in order to get back to the economy and the efficiency that you are running at um, to find that platform that you're looking for. Now, the challenge is also, again, like you wrote, trying to compare yourself to the college runner you were. And I'm guessing that three years out of college, you have other responsibilities, other inputs, other stresses, a different lifestyle than college, where everything's very secure, structured, repeatable, and you're younger and able to just sort of absorb anything the day throws you away because it's a pretty chill lifestyle. I get it. <laughs> I love that lifestyle. I was ready not to leave college forever because <laughs> it was sort of fun, as we all know. But so therefore, I would look at it a little bit differently and determine who am I now? What do I want to be right now? And what is the Z2 platform, the aerobic platform I'm looking to achieve? Once I've determined that, then maybe comparing myself or trying to get back to that old self might not be necessary nor realistic because you're a new version of yourself now. You have other qualities. You have maturity. You have insight. You're learning. You're learning more about your body. You're adapting. You're doing things despite working or having a different schedule. And that's going to be harder to compare back to the old version of you. So instead, I would focus on this version of you, where you are now. And don't think of it of where you want to be, but Think of it only on where you are now and how you can improve upon where you are now, right? The old adage of better tomorrow than I am today, better today than I was yesterday. How am I progressing? So 
also sounds to me like you don't have any type of numbers to go by, any type of testing, any type of field testing, lactate threshold testing, some hard concrete numbers to go by. Now, living in the upper northeast in the summer is very difficult. Yes, it's hot, humid, it's difficult. And then in the summer, of course, even in the southeast, it's even worse, Florida and so forth. How do you run without your heart rate going through the roof? I get it. So that takes a different adaptation, but if you live there and find the times of day when it's best to run, for sure, um, I believe a lot in showering and then going for a run, cold shower, so you can extend the time that your core stays cool further into your run. Um, there's places and, and people I coach who run from literally from beach shower to beach shower to stay cool, to keep somewhat, somewhat under control, but no. To answer your question in a very simple way, will the indoor trainer or riding a bike help your zone two aerobic platform for running? Very limited. It enhances it if you're doing plenty of running, but it doesn't affect it in a positive way. Um, unfortunately, it's horses for courses, and you got to run in order to get more efficient and bring your heart rate down at zone two and create a foundation for your running ability and getting back to that type of clarity around your your um, paces and your fitness the way you're familiar with again step one maybe define what you want to achieve now versus back then not comparing yourself step two would probably to figure out what your zones truly are step three would be maybe a treadmill indoors um, so you stay cool and once a week do a longer run on it nothing too crazy you don't want to do all your workouts on a treadmill I've had athletes that have done that I advise highly against that because it's an injury waiting to happen but now unfortunately you can do some cross training and do some active recovery on your bike but nothing to really stimulate the zone 2 platform aerobic foundation that you're looking for in your running sorry Alrighty, that'll do it for this week on the Weekly Word Podcast, episode 115. I hope you had some nuggets and tidbits that you enjoyed from that. I continue to get great feedback on the sunny aspect, a lot of other emails and questions and side conversations about that. So keep them coming, and I hope I'm pretty good, I believe, <laughs> in getting back to everybody on their questions. So from there... Have a great week, everybody. I think later this week, I'm going to um, publish a conversation I had with, uh, a consultation I had with uh, Todd, who's been struggling with a variety of issues um, regarding his performance in running and being connected to his fitness and being frustrated with that. And so it it's a pretty interesting story, and it's a great example of us having a conversation, Emily and I, together with um, Todd in this case, and over time, gradually coming to the conclusions and pulling information out of him that are then pertinent as to why he might be feeling the way he does. And you can hear in the conversation a lot about how we go back and forth and trying to grab that information. So, um, And then come up, of course, with suggestions for Chris prescriptions, um, future outcomes, goals, and so forth. So um, I think everybody will enjoy that conversation. It's sort of a really unique one. So we'll go from there. But yeah, have a great week. I've got about ooh, 12 emails in my inbox. 
still waiting to be answered for the podcast. And then I was also thinking of taking the sunny training plan and posting it on the newsletter. I know there hasn't been a newsletter in quite some time. Quite honestly, I do that on purpose. I have no interest in filling your um, email box up with things that no longer, or not no longer, that are just noise. I only try to get a newsletter out there when it's filled with good content and value. And I'm gradually getting there that I almost have a full one. I think I'm going to work on it later this week and um, hopefully get one out for you, the September version. So I don't think I've sent one out since July. But yeah, have a great week, everybody. And I look forward to talking to you on episode 116. Thank you.